Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it's always better for the show if you go to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk about some of the latest issues in the economy and how what's happening in China could reverberate globally. Uh, If you remember back a few weeks, maybe in about a month and a half ago, I did an episode dedicated to the Evergrande situation in in China. I probably did a couple episodes of that now that I think about it. Uh, I sort of went into all the details there, so we're going to kind of do an update on what's happening with that company, what's happening in China's real estate market overall, how that dovetails with some of the other ongoing issues in the pandemic and the supply chain crisis, what's really happening in some of those situations. So that's that's sort of the topics for today, sort of an overview of what are all the tailwinds for the economy, what can you sort of expect to, to happen is, because, you know, we're in December here, what can you expect moving into the new year of 2022? So that's the agenda for the show, so we can jump right in here. So like I said, we're going to go through several things here. I'm going to start off at the top going through Evergrande because there was some breaking news on this over the weekend. We're heading into uh, the the this new week here, uh, we Monday. So a lot of this breaking news regarding China is going to happen overnight. So some of it started to lead in sort of with their futures market. Uh, you know, you have some of the news starting to break there. Um, overall, the Chinese economy is just sort of continuing to lumber along. Evergrande is still a highly indebted real estate developer. If you remember back, uh, it, they were threatening default first in September. Then again in October, there were some threats of them defaulting. And again in November, there's this threat every month where they have new debt payments that they have to make. They are struggling to make them. And the threat of them defaulting, because they are one of the largest real estate developers in China and the world, uh, because they are potentially defaulting here, they pose a risk of causing contagion in the entire economy of China and potentially reverberating out even further across the global economy. And there's the threat, and, and people have, have compared them in this respect to Bear Stearns from the 2008 financial meltdown in the United States because there is this is a similar thing. This is another liquidity crisis in just it's just a different country. It's not America. It's it's China where this is starting there. So the big thing that came out over the weekend is that Evergrande announced publicly, domestically, and internationally that they could give no guarantees moving forward that they were going to make repayments. Up until now, they've had warning signs about all of this. But at the last minute, they've been able to drum up cash. And a lot of this has been either them selling off something or specifically the CEO of the company has said that he has had to sell off stuff, either stock or personal items or something to generate cash to meet these payments. So 
this 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 news story was them saying, "Listen, we don't we we can make no guarantees this is going to happen moving forward because they have things like this every month." All the way through, there are some bigger ones looming off next spring that are in the billions uh, range. Right now, we've been talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, but there are some coming up next spring that have billion dollars uh, behind them when it comes to repayments. So, <clears throat> with that announcement, immediately the stock price futures for them fell seven percent. I saw some even before I was getting on here; they were dropping as much as ten and eleven percent. So. Their stock price has already lost 80% of its value over the last year because of this liquidity crisis. It's dropping some more now, where it's losing another tenth of its value, potentially. Uh, we'll see where it settles tomorrow. These were already 11-year stock price lows. Uh, and so they are facing a real liquidity crunch here, where it, as their stock price falls, it makes it harder for them to sell off stock in order to pay off some of these things. So like, you know, when you're looking at the CEO... It, one of the main ways that he's going to generate cash are his personal shares of stock in, in the company. That's what he's done a couple times. And as that stock price drops, the value of it drops, it becomes harder and harder for him to generate that. Obviously, it's harder and harder to get loans because the the interest rates on those loans are just astronomical. So you're seeing a real liquidity crisis here where they cannot generate cat or you know wands in their in their thing but just actual dollars or to to pay off something uh, going along with that we've had some other companies default along the way too some smaller ones one of the main one was the sunshine 100 china company they announced that they were defaulting they cannot make their payments there was about a 10 and a half percent uh interest rate involved with one of their things i can't ever get off the top of my head in any event they full-on announced that they were they were defaulting so the more of these smaller developers that default, the more pressure you're going to see on the Chinese real estate sector. And as this happens, that's going to cause the debt cost to go up for all the remaining companies, because if you have all these defaults, it's going to be harder for the other companies to survive. And in fact, that's what one of the ratings agencies said. Uh, Moody's is now predicting there's going to be more defaults through 2022 for all of the companies involved in this real estate sector. And this could spread out some. So... Where does that leave us? Well, along with that no guarantee news story that came out, another one came out with the Wall Street Journal, and it said that China, the Chinese Communist Party, the government, they are now said to be working with Evergrande on a possible restructuring, and they've gone, they've launched an investigative group, they're visiting the company, they've supposedly called in the CEO, there were some rumors that the CEO of Evergrande was missing, I have not seen any confirmation of that, um, but still, they are working towards a potential restructuring deal here. So much in the way of what you saw in the 2008 liquidity crisis, the Great Recession here in the United States, the government is trying to project a, a form of calm and that everything is under control and they're going to work this thing out. Will that work? You know, everything is up in the air. Everybody is sort of banking on the fact that it works. It, it also cannot work. Uh, we, you know, this is China here. They're, they're, they're saying that they can fix this, but as they say in a lot of things, a lot of things, they make a statement that they fix something without actually having done anything. So we'll see. So could this be a Bear Stearns moment? That is within the realm of possibilities. That is definitely a possibility here. And that's primarily because this is not an isolated scenario. If this was just the Chinese real estate market sitting by itself, this would mainly just be a domestic story in China. Over here, we would look at it, 
and we would say, well, that's interesting. There could be some reverberation effects here with some of the firms that have investment dollars in China. But largely, this would have very little impact anywhere else. Um, you would see some slowdown with trade if there was a slowdown in the Chinese economy, and that would impact the United States. But if we had this just as the only event, you know, the only thing, main thing occurring, we could overcome that. You could see you would see shifts in the supply chain and that and, the, and this, that, and the other. The problem is that it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening all across the world as we're going through a pandemic and as there's a global supply chain crisis. And big picture, those are your three major tailwinds for the, both the United States and the global economy. Interestingly enough, and one of the reasons I started following this, you know, I, I keep following this on and off, sort of this is happening, but one of the things that happened after Thanksgiving, there was the Friday after Thanksgiving, and there was a massive sell-off across the entire market. And, and for the most part, it was about the, the Omicron variant. And I said last week, you know, by itself, Omicron does not appear to be a big deal. It may cause a spike in cases, but it is not showing the same signs of being as severe as Delta was. So right now, you kind of have two variants. You've got Delta and Omicron knocking around out there. So with that, uh, you have that sell-off with that. There is also some sell-off action happening because of what's happening in, in places like China. And in some of this sell-off, interestingly enough, this past weekend, over Friday in particular, late Friday, after the U.S. markets had closed, there was a massive sell-off in the crypto sector, where you had Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, uh, Litecoin, just, just about everything, every major coin sold off and lost 10 20% or more, uh, which puts them in either correction or, or bear market territory for some of them, depending on how far they fell off. And so what that is showing, uh, you know, with all these billions of dollars now invested in some of these cryptocurrencies, when you're seeing that in some of these other areas, what it's showing is that people are looking for liquidity. And so they're moving their, their, their dollars out of these cryptocurrencies, which is kind of interesting. These cryptocurrencies are not proving to be a hedge against anything right now, but they're trying to get cash straight up cash so they can then turn around and either hold it or stick it somewhere safer because they're expecting a downturn. So that's happening in the cryptocurrencies. You're seeing the sell-off in some of these other areas due to Omicron. In general, there are a lot of tailwinds right now. So there's a lot of volatility in the market. And so the three main ones, the three tailwinds right now, the one we just talked about, there's the Evergrande, you know, China's possible recession or slowdown in their economy. That's kind of all together. There's this Omicron variant, and really, and specifically, this is really just the COVID-19 winter wave. How bad is that going to be? How long does it last? Uh, what does that look like? And, and more specifically on the Omicron thing, how do the governments act? That's the major question. And then the third tailwind is the ongoing supply chain crisis. So we've talked about the first one, which was China and Evergrande, and how that's an ongoing issue. The second one is... The Omicron variant. So I kind of covered some of the numbers here. I don't really want to go through all the stats of what's happening on COVID-19 this week, but we have a growing winter wave that is continuing to grow. It's basically Delta. There's likely far more Omicron uh, cases out there than we know, just because we're just now learning how to detect it. Uh, so, you know, between the two of those, they are likely going to cause a, a spike in cases. 
Uh, Delta can cause a spike in hospitalizations because it is that bad. Omicron, it's unclear if it can do that just yet. But either event, you're looking at an increase in cases. There's no sign that hospitalizations are are as bad right now. Uh, You do have the growing case counts. The real question here, and the one that troubles me, is what is government action going to look like here? Do you know the federal and state governments take action here? If there are lockdowns or restrictions of any kind, that is an immediate drag on the economic growth, period. If you have a lockdown of any kind, and I, I honestly, I don't think we're going to have any lockdowns. I don't see the evidence for that. And it's just, it would be political death for anyone to, to commit to a lockdown. It doesn't matter what your politics are. If you, you we're heading into 2022, there are elections on, uh, you know, coming up on the horizon. Every politician knows if they order lockdowns, that is an immediate loss in political support. Immediate. No, no, I don't know a single group of parents besides the most neurotic groups. I don't know a single group of parents that wants the, their schools to go to a hybrid or remote environment ever again. The mere threat of going remote in some of these schools is enough to cause a panic. Uh, you know, I have I have liberal friends who are moving out of some of these blue cities and blue states on the basis of schools alone. It's one of the one of my interesting dynamics I've ever seen, where people I know who are liberal are fed up with how these places are run purely on the basis of schools. They want, people want these schools open, and so. What people are scared about here is not really the variant, although you do have the people who are terrified of the variant. Those are the most neurotic folks. But what you're seeing, and you know, I've seen, I think it was you know, some of these investment firms where your JP Morgans and Wells Fargo's and people like that, group companies like that, banks like that, they're saying sort of the same thing. All their clients, all their wealth management clients, they're not scared of the variant. They're scared of what the government action is going to be, or in reality, what the overreaction is going to be. And that's what concerns me, too, because I don't really know what Biden's going to do or what some of these blue state governors are going to do, because so far they've been really driven by the most neurotic and crazy parts of the left wing of their faction that really wants shutdowns and masks and lockdowns and you know they want all these things that is a political death knell for any other part of the country and so i don't expect any red or purple states to do anything other than just telling people to hey go get vaccinated or go get your booster shots if you want to wear a mask feel safe do that we're staying open so i think that is the real answer there But the problem is, if you see a place like a California or a New York pushing out these harsh regulations, that's going to have an impact. That's just flat out going to have an impact. There's no way around it economically across the country. You have the major supply chain ports in places like Los Angeles, and if they are impacted by major measures by these governors, the supply chain crisis gets even worse. Where do you have it right now with the vaccine mandates? If you have employees that you're going to have to either get rid of or not going to be able to use, and so, you know, your things like truck drivers, your port workers, and things like that, people who are very key to these operations, 
you're going to experience a slowdown in your capacity to handle anything because you're going to lose workers. That is the major drawback of that vaccine mandate. Yes, we should want everybody to be vaccinated, but right now, based on the evidence that we have, the real threat right now is the economic slowdown. We cannot handle another year like 2020 where you have a massive decrease in economic activity. Just can't happen. The supply chain is already messed up. We can't handle any more of that. That is not a survivable event. If you do, you're talking about a recession. And if you're a politician and you hear the word recession and you know you've got an election heading into 2022, that is a terrifying thing to think about. So I don't know exactly how bad this winter wave is going to be, but the real threat, and this is, you know, this continues to be a threat for the unvaccinated. It is, it is not an issue if you are vaccinated. And if you're scared, then just go get a booster shot. You'll be fine. Mix up, you know, get some Pfizer and Moderna at the same time. Get a Johnson and Johnson. I don't care. Just get one. This is only an issue for the unvaccinated. And the real threat beyond that is what restrictive measures will do to the economy moving forward. We cannot afford another version of that. Now, along with this, that that brings us to the third issue here, which is the port issue, which I've alluded to several times. And the main one is in Los Angeles, and that port crisis, and it is a crisis, is worsening. Now, the supply chain is not improving at all. I've seen some hints, you know, some stories saying suggesting the supply chain stuff was improving, but that's not what happened. What's happened is that the Biden administration has claimed that there's a 40% drop in the number of ships waiting at port, and specifically the Los Angeles port. So there's fewer ships waiting. If that were true, that'd be fantastic news. They said there was a 40% drop over the course of four weeks. That has not happened. What they've done is redefine what it means to be a ship waiting. So typically what this means is that if you're a ship waiting to get into a port, you're within a 40-mile radius of that port, and you're waiting in for your turn in line. They just wait, they anchor offshore, and they wait to offload their stuff. So again, before, those within 40 miles, they're waiting. That's who you're counting. Well, what they've done, what the Biden administration, what the ports have done, is that they've told, they've given the ship captains, they've given them basically, uh, you know, here's your, here's your, your, your sticker, here's your waiting in line ticket. This is where you are in line, and if you're waiting in line here, we don't need you to wait here within this 40-mile radius because we have environmental concerns that all these ships are sitting here. If you want to do that, go wait out 50 miles further or more. Here's your ticket. You're guaranteed your spot in line. When we get to you, we'll get to you. And so the ship's uh, captains are saying, well, okay, we'll just go anchor off somewhere else, either off the port, after, you know, outside of Mexico, or we'll just go out this side, this 50-mile zone, which is where you want us. Whatever. We'll do that. So we'll do that. Now, when they go outside that 50 or that 40-mile marker there and are 50 miles out or further, what happens is they're no longer counted in that ship's in waiting line. What they've done is that they defined a class of ships that are waiting, but they've taken them out of the calculation. So that makes it look like it's better when, in fact, there are still ships waiting to get in. When you actually count, because we know the ships that are waiting, if you actually count those ships and you go out that 50 plus miles or more, you find 94 ships waiting. That is a higher number 
waiting to get into the Los Angeles port than was waiting to get in in November. I believe the number in November was 80 ships waiting to get in, and they were all crammed in that little area. Well, now they're out more further than that. They're a little more spread out. But now there's 94. So we see an increasing number of ships waiting, and the supply chain is getting worse, and the time it takes to get a goods from across the Pacific, it continues to grow, but the Biden administration is claiming a victory here because they've redefined what it means to be in line here, and they're just kind of waiting for the issue to go away, when in fact the issue is not going away, it's getting worse. And ironically enough, this is a growing trend with the Biden administration. Let me write about this a little bit further, but I, mean, I was looking at this and I was thinking about it, and it's like, if you're the Biden administration and you realize, oh wait, we've got a problem, we need to do something, all you have to do is redefine it. Are you leaving Afghanistan real quick and in a hurry? And you're leaving Americans tracked everywhere? What do you need to do? Redefine it. Well, we got everybody out that wants to be out. All Americans that wanted to be out are out. And there's no Americans trapped. Well, maybe there are some Americans trapped, but we're working with them. We're going to get them out. And then they don't care about any other category. So they just defined the, pro- the problem away. If you redefine the problem, all of a sudden you fix the problem and you look great. If the problem is defined as what it is, you look awful. Are there ships now waiting in line and they're all crammed up? Well, what do you need to do to change that? Well, the ships if the ships are all here, they're counted. If they're outside of this area, they're not counted. Well, let's get them all outside of that area. We'll claim environmental concerns and we'll kick them out of that area and we'll call it a day. That's what's happening here. They're just redefining what the problem that they want to solve is and then saying that they solve that. This is kind of like back... Back in the spring, we had, you know, I went on multiple diatribes about how just it drove me crazy when they would talk about setting all these goals for getting vaccinations in arms. Well, if you looked at the data and you understood what the trend lines were, we were going to hit some of them. Like, they, one of them was like 100 million doses in arms by like, I think it was a spring date or maybe a summer date. In any event, if you just did the math, we were going to hit that through sheer inertia. It was nothing the Biden administration had done. It was just the sheer inertia of Operation Warp Speed. But they claimed victory on that. Even though when you, and this was before the Johnson & Johnson pause, which also caused another diatribe out on me, that caused a massive slowdown, and the Biden administration did nothing about that. They almost, they missed their July 4th, Deadline, just because they did nothing to stop the July the Johnson and Johnson pause, which affected all vaccines. I would note. So this is what they do. This is this is their their plan of action. If you have a problem, redefine the problem. Claim you solved that version of the problem and declare the other one null and void because you have real knowledge here. When in reality, they're just redefining the parameters and claiming things are getting better when things are not getting better. And this is this has real consequences here. I mean, just like Afghanistan did. If you leave America, actual Americans trapped in Afghanistan, that is an actual problem. People's lives are in danger. Just because you redefine it doesn't mean the danger's not there. And now, I think the latest report out of the New York Times says 22.5 million people are now, are now at risk of starvation and dying in Afghanistan due to that starvation issue. This is also going to get ignored by the administration. They've redefined the issue. They're not at, at, at the problem anymore. 
Uh, but now, the, you know, the supply chain is something that is here. You cannot redefine this and expect it just to go away. The supply chain waits, and the more it stacks up, the worse it gets. You have to actually correct the problem, and they've done nothing to correct the problem. And when you do nothing to correct the problem, you cause things like recessions. Because the longer the supply chain issues go on, the less supply you have, the less you can sell. And so these businesses that need their goods to sell are not going to have it. And if you don't have it and you can't sell it, you cannot make money. This is just basic economics here. You have to have the supply to get to people. And if you don't have it, you can't make those sales. That causes higher inflation prices, so your, all your prices are going to go up, and people's wages are effectively going to continue to shrink because they're not going to be able to afford the things that are going on here. So this is a very real issue here, and the administration has no solutions, and that is a problem. The fact that they have no solutions is a problem because this is a very real issue with very real consequences. And, you know, as I said, the big picture is you've got these three things here. You've got Evergrande in China, you've got Omicron, and you've got the supply chain crisis. And all three of these things are sort of acting together in concert here, and one impacts the other. If there's a slowdown in China, that's going to decrease the amount of supply that we can get. That's going to cause prices to go up further. So you have those two, which are just flat out going to interact with each other. If we see major restrictions out of China or any other country due to Omicron, that's also going to impact the other things too. So all of these things are sort of bouncing around with each other. If any of these were just by itself, we could probably get it fixed. But it's the fact that there are all of these factors bouncing around here that you can get a really toxic mix really quick. And I'm not trying to just be like a negative Nancy, you know, with with the Biden administration in charge and everything. You know, I'm obviously conservative. This is a Democratic administration. I obviously find it easy to criticize them. But these these are very real challenges. When it came, you know, to dealing with the pandemic, I thought there were ways where they could have solved it. And so that's why I offered up those solutions there. They, they haven't done a lot with that and, that, and that has consequences now. And now we're facing, you know, they had issues with Afghanistan. They didn't take anybody's advice on that. That got worse. And now we're with an economic issue here with three major issues, and everyone agrees that the supply chain, Omicron, and Evergrande have the potential here to be a, a, a contagion event on the global economy. This could be a contagion event that, that's like Bear Stearns where you could have a global liquidity crunch. That's the threat. That's the concern. The Federal Reserve, in, in their one of their reports, and I read it off here on, on this show, they called these things threats to the global economy heading into 2022. These are known issues. You cannot just define them away and claim victory. That's a political optics win. It's not a real win. And when you continue to take your optics win, eventually... You have, you know, eventually you've got to pay up here. Eventually these things are going to either, they're going to resolve themselves one way or another. You can't just punt these things away. They're going to continue to build. So eventually we're going to have a situation here where the bubble is going to pop one of these. Maybe China is able to restructure all these, these real estate developers and nothing ends up happening there. That'd be great. Maybe you have a situation where the supply chain somehow fixes itself over the next six to eight months. That'd be great. And maybe Omicron doesn't cause any problems. But you're dealing with a lot of maybes. And the flip side of those possibilities is also true. You could see a situation where the supply chain gets worse, China goes into recession, and Omicron causes some of these blue state 
blue state, you know, California's or New York's, it causes them to go into lockdown, which hurts the entire economy as well. A lot of unknowns here, and generally, I think you could have ex- ex- been optimistic under the previous administration that they would find the right thing to do and we would find a way out. I'm less optimistic about this administration because all they do is redefine the problem. And you can't just redefine the problem. You have to actually tackle it. And they are not doing that. And that concerns me heading into 2022 because this is just year one. <laughs> they, they don't even have their feet under them yet. They haven't hit a year mark yet. And, you know, we'll see what happens moving forward. But the storm is building here of all these bad stories on the global economy. They're kind of, you know, all coalescing together. And we really need these things to, to, to resolve in, in a good manner. Uh, you know, China's got some hard decisions ahead. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to have to figure out something. And we're going to have to figure out something here on the supply chain crisis and Omicron. You can't just wish them away. They they actually have to be dealt with. So we'll see what the administration does. Uh, you know, I don't expect much from them. They've not given me much to expect from. These are they, well, they came in with the moniker that they're the adults in charge, and they have not shown the the aptitude to do anything thus far. So that's all I've got for the main part of the show. The the light item this week, and I do have one this week. Uh, over the weekend, we had the passing uh, uh, former senator. Bob Dole, he was also a former presidential candidate in 1996. He tried to run pre- in previous years, too. But 96 was when he got the nomination, and he ran against Bill Clinton. He lost that year. Uh, he was he was obviously a great man. World War II veteran. I've got a column coming out about him and, and one other gentleman who was from the World War II generation and passed away. So look for that at the Conservative Institute. Uh, it is... It's concerning and sad that we're losing the World War II generation and those that those who were leaders there um, because they you know they're called the greatest generation for a reason they did a lot of great things between the Great Depression World War II and then facing down a communist threat from the USSR so they they did a lot to help build the world that we live in today and now we're beginning to lose them and it's important to to make sure to go back read about them study what they did uh, there was a major effort through the 90s and 2000s to try to capture everything that they knew and so I want to highlight this event though uh, this is from this is after the 96 election after Bob Dole had lost uh, but this was done on January 17th 1997 and after he won Bill Clinton took the the interesting decision to award Bob Dole, after he defeated him, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor that we can bestow, uh, that a president or anyone in the U.S. government can bestow on a citizen. So he, there was a ceremony. It was before, you know, he did it before the inauguration. And so I thought it was, it was a very good moment. It was a lighthearted moment. And also I thought Bob Dole had some good words here. So here's the ceremony. Here is what President Clinton had to say and the remarks by by then former Senator Bob Dole, because he left the Senate to run for president in 1996. So here is that ceremony. It's about 10 minutes long. It is especially appropriate at this time that we also honor the remarkable service of one of our nation's most distinguished World War II veterans who has spent the last 50 years of his life building America and a better world, Senator Bob Dole. 51 years ago, during a fierce fight in Italy's Po Valley, 
Second Lieutenant Bob Dole was going to the aid of a fallen comrade when a shell struck him down. He would bear the burden of that terrible injury from that day forward. His recuperation was long and uncertain. Yet Senator Dole turned adversity to advantage and pain to public service, embodying the motto of the state that he loved and went on to serve so well, ad astra per aspera, to the stars through difficulties. Son of the soil, citizen, soldier, and legislator, Bob Dole understands the American people, their struggles, their triumphs, and their dreams. Through five decades of public service, it took him from county attorney to Senate majority leader and the longest serving leader of his party in history. He never forgot his roots in Russell, Kansas. He has stood up for he believed, for what he believed, championing the interests of his state's hardworking farmers, helping the disabled through leading the way to the Americans with Disabilities Act, extending the Voting Rights Act, playing a key role in the National Commission on Social Security Reform, and always, always supporting the leadership of our country, first throughout that long twilight struggle of the Cold War, and now in this new era, reasserting America's indispensable role for peace and freedom, security and prosperity. In times of conflict and crisis, he has worked to keep America united and strong. In this city often known for taking itself too seriously, we are all better for his fine sense of humor. But our country is better for his courage, his determination, and his willingness to go the long course to lead America. I am pleased to be able to recognize Bob Dole's record of achievement with the highest honor our nation can bestow on a citizen, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Through it, we honor not just his individual achievement, but his clear embodiment of the common values and beliefs that join us as a people, values and belief that he has spent his life advancing. Senator Dole, a grateful nation presents this award. With respect for the example you have set for Americans today and for Americans in generations yet to come. I now ask the military aide to read the citation. Major, post the orders. President of the United States of America awards the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Bob Dole. From foreign battlefields to the halls of Congress, Bob Dole has served his country with courage, dedication, and grace. Overcoming his own adversity, he rose to become a champion, a champion for the disabled and America's farmers, for preserving Social Security and promoting fiscal responsibility, and for strengthening our global leadership for freedom, peace, and prosperity. A man of the heartland, he brought common sense, uncommon skill, and a prairie wit to the United States Senate, where he was the longest-serving Republican leader in history. Soldier, statesman, and patriot, Bob Dole has created a record of achievement that will stand forever as a tribute to the strengths and values that have made America great.
Thank you. J. Dole. <laughs> Do solemnly swear. <laughs> oh. Sorry, wrong speech. <laughs> I had a dream <laughs> that I would be here this historic week receiving something from the president, <laughs> but I thought it would be the front door key. <laughs> but Mr. President, Mrs. Clinton, Mr. Vice President, and distinguished guests, no one can claim to be equal to this honor. But I will cherish it as long as I live, because this occasion allows me to honor some others who are more entitled. And I'm looking at a fellow soldier, Sergeant Carafa. Ed, he helped me a long time ago. And at every stage of my life, I've been a witness to the greatness of this country. Even playing a small role, I have seen American soldiers bring hope and leave graves in every corner of the world. I have seen this nation overcome depression and segregation and communism, turning back mortal threats to human freedom. And I have stood in awe of American courage, and decency. The virtues so rare in history and so common in this precious place. I can vividly remember the first time I walked into the Capitol as a member of Congress. It was an honor beyond the dreams of a small town. I felt part of something great and noble. Even playing a small role seemed like a high calling because America was the hope of history. And I have never questioned that faith in victory or an honest defeat. And the day I left office, it was undiminished. I know there are some who doubt these ideals, and I suspect there are young men and young women who have not been adequately taught them. So let me leave a message to the future. I have found honor in the profession of politics. I have found vitality in the American experiment. Our challenge is not to question American ideals or replace them, but to act worthy of them. I have been in government at moments when politics was elevated by courage into history, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, when the Americans with disabilities became law. 
No one who took part in those honorable causes can doubt that public service, at its best, is noble. The moral challenges of our time can seem less clear, but they still demand conviction and courage and character. They still require young men and women with faith in our process. They still demand idealists captured by the honor and adventure of service. They still demand citizens who accept responsibility and who defy cynicism, affirming the American faith and renewing her hope. They still demand the President and Congress to find real unity in the public good. If we remember this, then America will always be the country of tomorrow, where every day is a new beginning, and every life is an instrument of God's justice. Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, Mrs. Clinton, Elizabeth and I join me in wishing you and Mrs. Clinton, Vice President and Mrs. Gore, all the best as you embark on your second term. May God bless you and each inhabitant of this house, and may God bless America. Some pretty great words there from Dole and even Clinton describing Dole's background. I don't have much to add to that. Dole is a great man, and our nation's going to miss him dearly. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter. At DevonCI is the link there. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys next time.